0: Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome, church family. I'm Jason Jackson, and uh, one of the pastors here on staff. I love being here, and I love that you are here with us also here this morning. Thanks, Paul, and and band, and thank you, Abe, for setting us up here uh, this morning. It's summertime, and uh, so summertime, for some of you, may be a time for vacation. How many of you have had the opportunity to go on vacation this summer already? Just raise your hands nice and high. There you go. How many of you went on vacation to see family? All right, anybody? So, we okay, now look around. We all know what that's like, all right? This is not going to a resort or like an all-you-can-eat place or anything like that. It's a special kind of vacation when you go and see family, isn't it? Meredith and I had the opportunity to go out to New York where her family's from. My parents came out uh, from Cleveland to hang out for a couple days. And we actually, it was a family vacation that was incredibly relaxing. We loved it. And we came back totally refreshed and totally rejuvenated. But while we were there, we realized that uh, you know, it wouldn't have happened in the same way. We wouldn't have been relaxed or refreshed at all if it weren't for several people here back at home that were making it easy for us to go away. In fact, we had one of our good friends, a couple, that took us to the airport. They dropped us off at the airport. Now, if you've ever made an airport run with some people, you know that they are your friends, right? They dropped us off at the airport and then kept our car for the week in their garage. They watched our dog, which, you know, those have to be pretty good friends to watch our dog. When we came back, they actually picked us up at the airport. I mean, amazing. That's a, imagine that. It was July 4th, and they, were, they met us at the airport. In fact, we got out of the airport. They were, they were on the street right as you get out of that tiny little Des Moines airport, and they had detailed and washed our car. I felt like a celebrity getting into that thing. It was amazing. I was like, thank you so much. We had another friend while we were away mow our grass. Thank you. It's a lot of work to be friends with people when they go on vacation, isn't it? You know, we were gone over July uh, uh, that uh, weekend before July 4th, which, as most of you know, was the weekend when Ankeny got flash flooding, and our neighbor called us that Sunday morning. We're still in bed on vacation, getting ready to wake up and go to church service there in that little town, and our neighbor said, uh, he never calls me. He's like, hey, do you know what's going on here back at home? And I'm like, oh, no, boy, what? I had no idea. He said, our whole entire street is flooded. The pond that's behind my house came up over the road, he said, and and it's flooding everybody out. He said, do you want me to go over and check out your house for you? I'm like, yes, please, please. I gave him the garage code, have the keys. I don't care. Just get over there. There was no water in or anything, but you know what that's like to have somebody check on your house while you're gone, right? We had some friends from our sale group come over and water our plants, and, 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 and it was hard work for people while we were gone to take care of our stuff. I call these people friends because I, I realized that each of them did what they did because they had a relationship with us. In fact, I think there's a a biblical principle there for us this morning. We're going to look at it all together. And I I want to start out by saying there's almost always a direct link between the way you treat someone else's stuff and the kind of relationship that you have with them. And here's how we're going to say it very simply this morning. You'll see it on the screens behind me. Stewardship reveals relationship. Stewardship reveals relationship. The way you take care of someone's stuff says a lot about the way you feel about them. Now, we've all been there, right? If you're a teenager in the room here uh, this morning, you understand this. If you've ever had your dad hand you the keys to the family minivan and say, you can use it tonight, but it's not your car. It's my car, dad says, right? Or husbands, if your wife leaves the house to run a couple errands and she says, hey, well I'm gone, would you mind you know, washing the dishes or vacuuming or dusting or something like that? And you say, yeah, dear, of course I'll do that. And as soon as she leaves, you go and sit down on the couch and start to watch Sports Center, And you forget all about it until the garage door opens back up and then you rush over to the sink, right? Hey, babe, I'm just washing the dishes like you told me to. You understand what it means to take care of someone's stuff while they're gone, right? Or, you know, totally hypothetically, maybe you work at a church and your boss is on sabbatical for the summer. (laughs) Hypothetically. You're the backup pastor of announcements and you're asked to preach one time while he's gone. I'm asking for a friend, of course. Maybe you've been there, right? The point is that every one of us, at one time or another, has been given the incredible responsibility to manage the resources of someone else while they were away. The bottom line I believe the Bible wants us to walk away with this morning is this. The way you treat the owner's stuff says a lot about the way you feel about the owner. Stewardship reveals relationship. And so if you're just joining us this morning, Abe welcome you, I'll welcome you again. Thank you so much for coming. Maybe you're checking us out online, you're watching it right now on Facebook or on YouTube later. Thank you so much for doing that. We're in a series called Stories of the Kingdom. It's all about the parables that Jesus used to illustrate profound truths. Now these are simple stories that show us, that help uncover some really profound truths. You saw several of them illustrated in the bumper video that Tanner made. And we've been encouraged over the last several weeks to stop and to think and to act. And we're going to do that again here this morning. And by the way, you have to have all three of those things. You can't just stop and think without acting on what the Bible says. You can't just take time to, to think about God and have time to think about God and then not do anything about what you know about God. That's filling your mind and your life with a whole lot of knowledge and very little action. And we don't want that, right? So stop, think, think and act. In Matthew chapter 25, that's where we're going to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn there, please? We come into a heading in our Bible that says, in some of your versions, parable of the talents, or maybe parable of the bags of gold. It's actually nestled in the middle of a trio of stories that Jesus told, the first called the parable of the virgins, or parable of the bridesmaids, and then the next one, the last one of the three, the parable of the sheep And the goats. And so we find the parable of the talents in between those two stories. And all three of them are really packaged together in Jesus' teaching. They all reveal Jesus as the hero. He's either the groom, or the the king, or the master. And he's gone away and he's given responsibility to those who stayed behind. And one day he's coming back to gather up what's his in these parables. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, it's a really good summary of the main point of all three of these parables packaged together. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's as if Jesus, through these stories, is telling his audience, hey, listen, are you going to be ready for me to come back? And I think that's not just a question for those original listeners, or even the original readers of these texts, but a question for us here this morning in the year 2018. He's asking you, he's asking us, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Because he is. And it might be one of the most important questions you ever answer. And here's a secret this morning. I want to help reveal our hearts together this morning, your immediate reaction, your immediate response, the way your heart felt when you heard that question, are you ready for Jesus to come back, reveals some of the deepest parts of your soul. And we're going to look at that a little bit later. So here it is, the parable of the talents, a, a simple story with profound truths. Let's read Matthew chapter 25, verses 14-14. And 15 together. For it will be like a man going on a journey, Jesus says, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went on his way. So it's a simple story about a master and his servants, and it would have been one that would have uh, rang true for Jesus' original listeners. And probably several of them were servants. Maybe a couple of them were masters that had done something similar to this. And that's how Jesus told these stories. Pretty common occurrence in that time. But there's two words in this, in this passage right here originally, uh, initially in these first two verses that we might not use as much in our uh, English language as Jesus meant them in that context. And the first one is that word entrusts. Jesus says the master entrusted some property. Or entrusted some talents. Now, entrust means to, to give someone a responsibility to take care of something for a specific amount of time. It's that dad handing the keys to the car to his son, saying, hey, you can use this while I'm gone. Or you can use this while you need to loan it or borrow it, but it's not your car. Teenage, you don't own the car. Your dad's just letting you borrow it. And then in verse 15, the word Jesus uses is talents. Now, we think of talents as abilities and things that you're good at, skills and stuff. And that is what it means today. And in fact, this is where we get the word in our English language. But Jesus here in this passage is using talents as a a unit of measurement. In fact, a talent back then would be be, um, about 50 pounds of commonly gold or silver. Now, I know this is just a 10-pound dumbbell. But listen, I I couldn't do this if it was a 50-pound dumbbell, all right? So just bear with me for the illustration. So Jesus says there's a master, and he gives a weight of talents, a weight of gold, a weight of money, perhaps. Some of your versions say bags of gold. In fact, a talent, a single talent, was worth maybe a lifetime's worth of wages for a common laborer. That's a lot of money, maybe even 2 to $3 million today. That's a lot of wealth. There's a key principle embedded in these first two verses that we might miss if we're not careful, and this is it. The master is about to go away, and he calls together his servants, and he entrusts to them his property. See, he owns the servants. The the servants are his. He owns the property. The property and everything on it is his. He can do whatever he wants with it. And so before the master goes away, he distributes his wealth among the servants with the expectation that they would invest it in the same way that he would. He wants them to steward his property or to manage his household is what the word really means. And so he distributes the talents, his property, based on the servant's abilities. And so to the one, ma- to the one servant, he gives, he gives five talents. In fact, we'll, we'll, use, we'll use a 50-pound weight to illustrate that five talents. Okay, there we go. Okay, I got it. All right? To so the one servant, he gives five talents. This is a five-talent guy. And then to another servant, he gives 20 talents. Two talents, sorry. Two talents illustrated by this. And then to the third servant, just that single talent. Now, you might look at that and say, well, boy, that's kind of unfair for the master to look at his servants and to treat them differently. I mean, he distributes them differently. Why didn't he just give them all the same amount? Well, because the text says that he knew their abilities. He knew exactly what they could do because he was their master. He knew what they could do. He would watched them serve him for perhaps even years. So he distributes it based on their abilities. As a protection for him, he doesn't want them to squander it and also as a protection for them. If they can't handle it, he doesn't want them to have it. Okay, so then we're told that the master leaves on his journey, and later on we find out that he comes back, maybe even taking longer away than his servants originally thought he would. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more, and so also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And so the story continues with with these two servants enthusiastically, the first two enthusiastically investing the master's money. The five-talent guy, he he buys into Apple stock in the 80s, you know, and he's like making more money with it. Or maybe he got into Facebook when it was still relevant, right? He's, He's into it. He's doubling his master's investment. The return on his master's investment is 100%. The two talent guy, he grabs those two talents, two lifetimes worth of money, and invests it enthusiastically right away and goes and puts that money to work. And then the one talent guy, it's, it's a whole lifetime of wages, incredibly valuable wealth. He has the chance to double his master's money, the money that was entrusted. To him. Listen, the sky is the limit here. The opportunities are endless. He can do whatever he wants with that money to invest it and get a great return on his investment. When I was in high school, I mowed lawns for an after-school job, and then during the summer as well. And by the time I graduated from high school and was just getting ready to go to my freshman year in college, I had, uh, I had earned about $1,000. I'd saved up 1000 bucks. Now, to a high schooler, that maybe to some of you, that's a whole bunch of money. And so my mom and I, you have to take your mom to the bank with you when you do stuff like this. My mom and I went to the bank and I said, hey, here's $1,000. I want to invest it into something that after my freshman year of college will make a ton of money. Invest it for the school year. And I thought, man, I'm going to double my money easy. Maybe even triple. I'll come back after my freshman year. I'll have three grand sitting in the bank. I came back after my freshman year and went to withdraw that money, $7.14. I mean, that's not a great return on my investment, but it's better than this guy did. The one talent guy buries his master's wealth. At least I made seven bucks. Before we're too hard on the one-talent guy for burying his money, the truth is it was common wisdom to take your valuables and bury them in a field. Maybe you remember Pastor Brad speaking on the the, the parable of the buried treasure. I always wondered, why in the world would there be treasure in the middle of a field? Well, because common wisdom. The rabbis actually taught people, hey, if you want to keep it in the safest place, just dig a hole and put it in there. Nobody will know it's there, and you won't even have to touch it. And so this one-talent guy, the third servant, is, is listening to common wisdom when he does this. Let's keep looking at the story. Look at verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you've delivered to me five talents, and here I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, you've been faithful with a little, and I will set you over much. Listen to this phrase Enter into the joy of your master. And then, verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You also have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so now we see the response of the master when he gets home. He gathers his three servants together. They're out in the fields, or they're in his home, or they're doing what they were supposed to be doing. And he says, what have you done with my stuff that I entrusted to you? And the five-talent guy is watching at the window. He, he's waiting for the minivan to pull in, right? He's watching at the window. The master comes in, and, and he runs out to meet the master. The other two guys are following him. The master says, what have you done with what I've given you? And the five-talent guy goes, I've doubled your money. I made five more talents. And he hands the master all these bags of gold. He can't even hold on to them. He's doubled the master's wealth. And the two-talent guy... He's right there behind him, and the master says, what have you done with what I entrusted to you? And he says, oh, master, I'm so glad you're back. I made two more talents. I also doubled your investment. Ah, the master says, well done, good and faithful. And good there means profitable. You made me money. You were fruitful as well as being faithful with my stuff. Enter into my joy. And, And Jesus' listeners are nodding. I mean, they're looking at the five talent and the two talent guys and they're thinking, yeah, we're just like that. We're servants just like that. I can see how that would happen. Maybe some of them are even masters and they're like, yeah, I've got servants that have done that. They're starting to identify with these two guys. But one of them says, hang on, there's one more servant. Jesus is about to tell the rest of the story. So what is the rest of the story? The master turns to the third servant and he says, what have you done? with the incredible wealth that I entrusted you. And the whole mood changes, right? Look at verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. That's, that's harsh and critical. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talents in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Instead of doubling the master's wealth and giving him two talents as he comes back, he he throws the money on the table and he says, here, take it. I don't want it. I didn't do anything with it. I don't want the responsibility. It's yours anyway, right? Instead of offering the master increased wealth, he offers his master nothing but excuses and accusations. And I believe these excuses are born out of a skewed perception of the master. What does he say? I didn't invest what you gave me because I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were unfair. I knew you were inconsiderate. I knew you were unkind. Was he that kind of master? It seems not because the other two servants don't say anything about it. In fact, they were enthusiastic about receiving the talents, enthusiastic about investing them, and enthusiastic about the master coming back. I believe they thought he was an incredibly generous man. And this third servant shows that his relationship with the master is off because all three of them managed the master's stuff in a way that revealed the relationship that they had with him. And then this servant says, I didn't do it because I was afraid. Fear is a motivator here for him. He says, I didn't invest what you gave me because I was afraid. Now, this isn't the kind of Old Testament fear that we're instructed to have for God. It's not that kind of awe and respect and honor, but a fear that, a fear of failure. A fear that I can't risk anything. I don't want to do anything because I may fail. And a fear of failure paralyzed this third servant. And so when the ser- when the master comes back, he says, "Here is your wealth exactly the way you gave it to me." He digs up that treasure box, lifts out that talent, dusts it off and throws it on the table in front of his master. Makes excuses for his unfaithfulness, and so he is condemned by the master. Now, Jesus' listeners are stunned. Who who would dare talk to their master like that? Who would dare take their master's wealth and bury it? Who would dare treat that kind of responsibility with that sort of flippancy? Even a high schooler could make seven bucks on an investment. Why couldn't you? Look at the master's response in verse 26. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Even if I was a harsh man, the master says, you still should have put it in the bank. You still could have made seven bucks out of the deal, but he didn't. So take the talent, verse 28, from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Look at verse 30, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master calls this servant a wicked, worthless, useless servant unprofitable and lazy, unfaithful servant. The exact opposite of what he called the other two guys, good and faithful, right? The master says, listen, you weren't just fearful, you were just plain lazy. I gave you a lifetime's worth of wealth and you literally did nothing with it. You dug a hole and put it in the ground. Talk about lazy, You did absolutely nothing with the gift that I entrusted to you. And so the master takes the talent from the wicked servant and he gives it to the guy that earned him five more talents. Now the five-talent guy doesn't have just ten talents. He's got 11 talents. There are consequences for unfaithfulness as well as rewards for faithfulness. In fact, the master looks at the wicked servant and he says, throw this man into outer darkness, a place of weeping, and gnashing, grinding, gritting of teeth. In Luke 13 and other places in the parables, Jesus uses this phrase, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, to correlate to what we would call hell right now. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 13, to those who die without knowing him personally, they will spend eternity in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness, apart from God. See, stewardship reveals relationship. It's a simple story with some profound truths. Obviously, Jesus is illustrated by the master. The servants illustrate people who claim to follow Jesus and the talents. In our context, in our culture, it's the very lives that God has entrusted to us, the stuff that He's entrusted, our resources. The abilities, the gifts, the money, the materials, even time that God has entrusted to us to be responsible, to be faithful with it. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to uncover four profound truths that Jesus wants us to catch today. And very quickly, here's the first one. God owns everything completely. God owns everything completely. The master entrusted his wealth to his servants. He didn't make them the owners. They were stewards of his stuff. They were to manage his house as he was away. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. Listen to this phrase. You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with the price. The life of Jesus Christ bought each one of you. God owns everything. Your life is not your own. It's a life on loan. And the way you invest it says a lot about the way you feel about what Jesus did for you. Listen, I've seen some of you drive rental cars. You treat your life like you drive a rental car sometimes. You don't know the owner, so it doesn't matter how you treat it. Don't treat your life that way. God owns everything completely. Including your life. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus rescued us from eternal death, so we get to live our life on earth for Him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Dead people don't own things, God owns everything. Dead people don't own anything. When you drop money in the offering boxes in the back, you're not just deciding how much to give to God. You're deciding how much you dare hold on to. We're dead people. We don't own anything. But God owns everything everywhere. Everything and everybody belongs to him. Look at Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, everything and everybody, for he's founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. Listen, this changes absolutely everything. When you wake up in the morning, that first breath that you take, it's because God has given you that. When you look at your family, God has entrusted you with that family. God owns everything and everybody. When you eat your breakfast, you only have that food because God owns it and he's entrusted it to you. When you open the garage door to get into your car, whether it's a Mazda or a Maserati, God owns everything. He's given it to you to be a steward of. When you look at your tools or your kayaks, that's not your stuff. God owns all of it. He's allowed you to manage it while Jesus is gone when you come home from your job that God gave you and you eat your dinner and you kiss your family and you lay your head down on that pillow before you go to sleep, even that pillow is entrusted to you by God. We have a core value here at Sailorville that helps us understand what generosity is. It says, this God owns everything, so I will invest for eternity what he's given me temporarily that's the very definition of being a steward everything god owns everything there is no exception some of us want to look at this core value and say god owns everything except for my marriage god owns everything except i really want to hold on to this job because my goodness god can't take that from me there are no exceptions to that word everything if you have a box and you put everything in it and you label it everything what's outside of that Nothing! God owns everything. So what are we doing with it? I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I living as if I'm a servant of the master? Am I living as if I'm a servant? Or am I living as if I'm the master? Number two, God, owns, God knows each of us intimately. Listen, the master knew exactly what the servant's abilities were. And so he gave them, for a time, his wealth to manage He knew exactly how much to give them and how much not to give them. Follow me here. God knows you better than anyone else, right? And God wants you to grow to be more like Jesus, right? And God knows exactly what to give you or to withhold from you so that you will be more like his son, correct? And so therefore, God allows or causes or actually withholds at times exactly what you need to be who he wants you to be. So that job, God has given you that exact job, whether you're flipping burgers or you're working at Wells Fargo, God has given you that job for this time because he knows that's what you need. That junker that you drive, it's okay. God gave it to you because he knows that maybe you can't handle the Porsche. God knows that. Because God does everything in your life to allow you to be more like Jesus so that he would get the glory. God has given you your house. Whether it's a tiny little apartment or whether it's a mansion, it doesn't matter. He knows what you need to glorify him. God's given you your singleness. He's given you your miscarriage. He's given you your cancer. He's given you your flooded basement. Why? Because he knows what you need to be more like Jesus and ultimately to give him more glory. The master didn't entrust all of his servants with the same wealth. I love being a part of Vacation Bible School here. I've got a picture up behind me of John Nemmers and Tyler Betts. And I've asked Doug to crop me out of the picture. I'm over to Tyler's, uh, right behind Tyler there, and I'm lifting a pathetic amount of weights compared to what they're lifting. It's embarrassing. God has given these two guys the ability to do that, not me. But my problem is, I look at them and I want to be like them. Their house is bigger, they make more money, they're better looking, they're stronger, they've got a nicer car. And so I compare myself to other people and no one wins the comparison game. If you've got more and you're comparing yourself to people that have less, that leads to pride. If you have less and you're looking at people that have more, that leads to discontentment. If you have the same as someone else, that leads to complacency. I think I know what the third servant's problem was. He was on Instagram looking at the other two servants' lives and comparing his talents to theirs, comparing what the master entrusted to him with what the master entrusted to the other guys, and he was sitting on his couch scrolling through his Instagram feed feeling sorry for himself. Get off the couch and start living. Stop comparing yourself to others. And by the way, don't expose yourself unnecessarily to environments that make you discontent with what you have. I'm bad at this, I'll admit it. God's had to lovingly slap me around. He's used some of you, and, and especially my wife, to remind me that maybe God says to me, maybe I haven't entrusted more to you because you, you, you because you spend more time complaining about what you don't have than being thankful for what I have entrusted to you. Yow! Some of you can't lift more than 10 pounds. That's all right. Stop looking at the 50-pound guy and say, I wish I could lift this. (laughs) Lift that 10 pounds faithfully over and over and over and over and over again. And guess what? When you do that faithfully over long periods of time, one day you'll lift 20 pounds. And you're faithful with that. And you keep doing that over and over and over again. You're faithful with a little one day you'll be able to lift 50 pounds. Am I living as though I trust that God knows best? Am I living as though I trust that God knows best? Number three, God expects us to invest for eternity. Listen, friends, stewardship reveals relationship. Your money or the way you invest your life flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love, Tim Keller says. The point of the story is that the one talent man claimed to be a servant of the master, but his life didn't reflect a relationship with the master. Common wisdom led this servant to live a life of common faith that led to common fruit. If you're here and you just want common fruit, that's fine. But if you want uncommon fruit, it has to come from a life of uncommon faith. And that comes from a life of not listening to common wisdom, but uncommon wisdom. And so my question is, am I willing to have uncommon faith in order to produce uncommon fruit? One of my favorite quotes is, my greatest fear in life is not that I will be not wildly successful, but that I will be wildly successful at things that don't matter. I want to have a life of uncommon fruit. Number four, God offers us the opportunity to love him. Oh, this is so amazing. The master give, gives all three servants the opportunity to prove their relationship with him. The first two servants, because of their respect, their gratefulness, their love for the master, they work to gain even more wealth for their master while he's gone. And he offers the exact same thing to the third servant. Take the talent that I've given you, a year's worth of, of wages, and invest it. Show me that you care for me. He doesn't say, serve me faithfully so that I will love you. Jesus doesn't reward us with his love because we serve him faithfully. We serve him because we love him. When I leave the house in the morning to come to work or go somewhere else, I look at Judah and I say, you're the man of the house. He's four years old. Like, I get it, okay? He says, oh, that means I get to make the rules. No, that doesn't mean you get to make the rules. That means you get to take care of things the way daddy would if I were still here. And When I get home, I ask him if he obeyed while I'm gone, and I'm not trying to make a decision on whether or not I'm going to love him based on his answer. I'm not trying to make a decision on whether or not I'm going to keep him in our family based on whether he obeyed or not. There's nothing he'll ever do that will ever make me stop loving him. I'm trying to help him understand that every day I'm giving him the opportunity to show me that he loves me by the way that he acts. Not to earn my love, but to prove his love. This is the heart of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, you can't earn it, so that you can't boast. Jesus says, I'm offering you the gospel Don't bury it, don't ignore it, and don't try to earn it, just accept it. So I want you to ask yourself, am I trying to earn my way into a relationship with Jesus? Friends, look at me, if that's you, stop it. Stop that. You can't earn it. It's already been bought for you. It all comes down to this. What is my heart's reaction to the knowledge that Jesus could return at any time? King Jesus is alive and he's preparing a place for his servants and he's coming back. Praise the King. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus the greatest wealth that anyone could ever give. The one who gives us the opportunity to have eternal life, not just in heaven one day with you, but eternal life that begins right now. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that this morning would be a fork in the road, a stake in the ground for some of us, that we would say, God, I want to live as though you are sending Jesus back. Lord, let us be a church that invests for eternity what you have given us temporarily. And let us be ready when Jesus comes back. Amen.